Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. morning. Let me begin by an invitation with an invitation for you to log on. You don't really have to log on. You just click on MyFaithRadio.com. Uh, over on the right-hand side, you'll see a survey, a listener survey for the morning show. Uh, please let us know uh, what you think we're doing that you value. And, um, and then also, you know, what you'd like to hear less of or more of on the morning show. So please participate. And yes, to a listener who texted in saying, hey, I can't fill out the survey right now. Will it be available? Yeah, yeah, for a few days. So um, so go to MyFaithRadio.com at any point in the next few days, and you can fill out the Mornings with Carmen survey, because you are listening, and that's who we're seeking to survey, those people who are listening. Okay, uh, right now, Nat Becker is actually producing the show. Good morning, Nat. Good morning. So, that, that, so periodically, if I, um, if I give you a little <laughs> shout-out, right, you'll just know that it happens sometimes. Thanks. We're, we're glad you're here. Would you like to say good morning to your parents? I doubt they're up, but uh, <laughs> if they are, good morning. All right, so Nat is filling in this week. We really appreciate that. Paul Perot is on a much-needed uh, vacation, so hats off to him for all of his fine work uh, every day. Um, if if Florida were a country, well, this would be a whole different conversation, but if Florida were a country, it would have the world's fourth highest tally of new COVID-19 cases. 15,300 new cases. It's a, it's a record um, in a 24-hour period of time. Um, after only the United States, Brazil, and India. Florida, all on its own, would be number four if it were a country. Sometimes we talk about, well, if California were a country, because it's so massive in terms of an economic engine and such a uh, cultural influencer. But this would be uh, an area where you don't really want to have numbers as high as nations have. So let's be praying for the people of Florida. Let's be praying for um, God to send relief of every variety and healing uh, upon our land. Um, A few uh, headlines that are international. Um, Iran and China have quietly drafted a sweeping economic and security partnership. The New York Times is reporting today. Um, This partnership between Iran and China would clear the way for billions of dollars of Chinese investments in energy and other sectors in Iran. So just uh, think about that for a moment. It obviously undercuts our administration's and our nation's efforts to isolate the Iranian government because of its nuclear and military ambitions. It also puts uh, two of uh, the greatest enemies of Western um, liberal thought. When I say liberal thought, I'm not talking about uh, progressive liberalism. I'm talking about liberal in the in the idea that um, every idea gets a hearing and the best idea wins, that kind of liberal thought. Um, it pits two of the, the greatest haters of, of the Western approach to education and the Western approach to, to life and conversation and freedom. It, it, it puts them together. And this partnership will vastly 
uh, expand Chinese presence in banking, banking, telecommunications, ports, railways, um, and dozens of other projects and extend the ability uh, of Iran to do naughty things. So this is definitely something that we're going to want to watch as it develops uh, on the international front. Back here at home, the campaign ad cycle has begun in earnest. A, a PAC, a super PAC called America First Action, has just dumped $23 million uh, of advertising uh, upon you if you are in uh, five states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, oh, it's four states, and Arizona. Four states, $23 million in anti-Biden summer ad campaigning. Obviously, a pro-Trump pack called America First Action. Just be aware of that, that the ads you're seeing on television are not actually funded by the campaign and therefore do not have to rise uh, to the level of scrutiny that campaign ads have to adhere to. These are ads by PACs that are funded by dark money. I just think people need to know that. Uh, and so important to know. Um, to talk with us next is John Wood Jr. You remember him from Better Angels. Better Angels has a new name. It's Braver Angels. Uh, John Wood Jr. is a national leader, um, not only for Braver Angels, but in the conversations that we are having as a country in terms of um, the African-American voice and the African-American experience. John's own story and the story of his wife are both compelling uh, for those of you who don't remember him, uh, John is uh, African-American. He's also the former vice chairman of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County. Lots to talk about with John Wood Jr. up next. Joining me now, John Wood Jr. Uh, he is really spearheading the efforts of an organization called Braver Angels. We have had him on uh, before. The organization's uh, older name, former name, is Better Angels, uh, now Braver Angels, and you'll want to find them at braverangels.org. Braver Angels is America's largest grassroots, cross-partisan organization dedicated to political depolarization fighting the forces of division to build a house united. John Wood Jr., welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. It's so good to be on with you. Well, it's a delight to have you. I um, I have right up here in front of me um, your post at braverangels.org um, entitled Black Lives. I recognize okay. that this post is, um, is from a month ago. And so um, I know I'm asking you to turn back time a little bit. But I also recognize that this is your story. This is your wife's story. Um, and it helps us uh, as a particularly white evangelical audience listening right now. Um, it helps us um, see things we haven't seen by listening to people's experience that is not our own. So if mm. you would be so kind right. as to do so, um, just talk about your experience growing up and your wife's experience growing up. And I just... Tell us your story. Yeah, sure. Right. So my uh, 
my wife's and my experiences sort of represent, um, I guess you could say, poles in, in, in the black experience generally. And, I, and the reason I wanted to write about those uh, differences is because it does sort of lend texture to our understanding of the black experience generally in America and why it is so many of us, white and black, see that experience and that reality in, in different ways. So I am uh, – um, I guess you could say biracial African American. I um, my mother is uh, my mother's my mother's black. Uh, she's from uh, inner city uh, Los Angeles. Uh, my father is uh, white. He's from Tennessee originally. My mother comes from a modest background. My father comes from a very affluent family that moved out to L.A. from the South originally, and I was raised in multicultural, um, multicultural Culver City, uh, California. And, uh, you know, I lived a very comfortable life that was well integrated, uh, surrounding community. Um, one of the things I say in that piece is that when I was growing up as, uh, yeah, you know, young, uh, young, I guess, mixed race black kid in Culver city in the, um, in the nineties, uh, you know, I, I was very much trusting of the authority figures in my community. I trusted the, trusted the teachers. I trusted the local politicians. I trusted the, the police force because, you know, I saw everybody sort of getting along well, being treated well. And I always had the sense that, that opportunities in America were well afforded to people of my skin color and um, beyond. I grew up learning about Dr. King and the civil rights movement and the story of American life that was really deep-seated in me was one in which racism was a terrible fact of the of the past, but never but but of the past nevertheless. And that after the the success of the nonviolent movement, the death of King, that America had had largely put racism um, behind it. But one of the things I talk about in that piece is my faint memory of the 92 Los Angeles riots and the aftermath of the beating of beating of Rodney King. And one of the things I I mentioned is that I can remember at the age of at the age of about five or so. Um, I can remember a few days in my home in Culver City where I can remember that something bad was going on outside. There was a sort of a tension and a nervousness in my house. I didn't really understand it. Um, but I remember, uh, you know, and my father would remind me about this years later, but there was a, a day uh, when my uh, my mother stepped out the door to go to work. Years later, Dad would tell me that this was the scariest moment of his life. This was in the heart of, uh, in the heat of the riots. Um, my mother went to work uh, just, you know, just a few miles away, but it was it was near the scene of some some major disruption. And as she left the house and drove down the street, my father uh, watched her drive away, and he, he and he had the sinking feeling that he might never see her again. He thought to himself, "Dear God, why did I let her go?" But then she came back later that day. Uh, it was fine. She did have a bit of a scare. At least she got close to some bad things, but she returned home. Life went on, and I was sort of none the wiser for it until years later as I got older. Um, but 15 minutes away and um, 15 miles away in Watts, in the Jordan Downs Projects in Watts in Los Angeles, um, my wife, um, who was four years old, uh, was living in the middle of a little war zone, you know, um, and the Jordan Downs projects in Watts, which is, uh, you know, one of the largest public housing communities in uh, California, one of the largest ones west of the Mississippi River, actually, uh, in a predominantly African-American uh, community, or what was certainly at that time, so it's largely Latino now as well. Uh, but my wife, uh, she was in the midst of 
gunfire and explosions and violence and death and just flames erupting in the community around her. Uh, this was the heart of the conflagration or much of it. And she can remember the law enforcement uh, abandoning the area. She can remember looking out her door and, you know, hearing and seeing the violence and the chaos and, and you know, relatives, you know, cowering and this happening for, you know, for uh, days on end. And um, this was her formative experience of life in the United States of America, of all places, if you can imagine. And, um, you know, and of course, all of this in response to, you know, to the brutal beating of an unarmed African-American man seared into the conscience and the imagination of her family, her community, um, and so forth. And now, you know, and so gr growing up and going on from that, you know, this is where her American memories begin. But living in this particular area, living in uh, urban Los Angeles, in, in, in Watts, L.A., growing up in the 90s, even if you look at aggregate statistics during the 90s and see that overall crime rates and incarceration rates and, and death rates within the community owing to violence had fallen, but those things are still so high in her life growing up that by the time she got to be an adult, she had quite literally seen more more death by by gunfire and, and and other means of violence in her community that I think that I think uh, a lot of soldiers in Iraq or Afghanistan might see during the times that they serve. I mean, just you know, in addition to having to bear witness to the failings of the educational system, to the you know, to corruption or abuse, local law enforcement. Um, this then becomes her American story, so that by the time an incident like uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis takes place and the response that follows that takes place, what, what for many Americans and what even for me seems like sort of this, this radically terrible and abnormal sort of thing, to her just becomes an, an exercise in the familiar, right? And so um, this is what I mean when I say that her experience and mine represent poles in the in the in the black experience in America. I think that the lives of most black people probably unfold somewhere in between, but so much of the black experience is so much closer to what my wife has experienced growing up than I think people realize. But it does set the kind of, you know, the emotional, psychological, and the experiential backdrop for understanding where this larger kind of anger and outrage uh, comes from, you know, within black life, even in 2020, when we would like to think that so many of these problems have been, you know, have, 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 we would like to think that some of these problems have been laid to rest behind us. But in many ways, you know, you know, the, the, the legacy of the difficulty of, you know, of, of black life in America historically is still also very much a present uh, reality in, in, in many, many ways. I'm talking with John Wood Jr., the organization is Braver Angels. You can find them at braverangels.org. We're going to take a very brief break. Uh, and then John and I are going to talk about the path forward. Um, what what does a, pa a positive path forward look like? Um, we're, we are anxious to find that path forward um, as communities across the country and certainly as a nation. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Mm -hmm. Resuming my conversation with John Wood Jr., you can find him at braverangels.org. 
Um, John, I want to talk with you about the path forward. Um, cast the vision for uh, for a conversation that we are going to have as a nation that restores uh, a posture of malice toward none. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate. I really appreciate that framing. <laughs> the approach that we have to that we have to take with engaging each other. Uh, across these lines of difference in our experiences and therefore the perspectives that I think our experiences kind of set in, set in motion has to be, I think, one that on the one hand captures the energy behind a desire to see greater justice, greater greater equality unfold in, in life in the United States of America, but that it's able to do that in a way that one makes space for the real nuance of the realities that we're living in racially and otherwise to come to the fore in that conversation, while two, also setting the stage for genuine reconciliation and healing and understanding to happen across the divide and for, and for all people uh, involved in this, right? And so we have a tendency to, one, be, be simplistic and, and sort of, you know, uh, zealous in our cause, which is which the energy of zeal can be can be great, but we have a tendency to be on the one hand simplistic and two on the other hand not really uh, open the space for genuine redemption and reconciliation to take place in in the conversation over race in in America. There can be a way in which we want people to start off agreeing with this before we even allow them to participate in the dialogue, right? And so, on a material level, you know, what are the things that we do to actually uh, to actually make that happen? Well, of course, you know, there is the work of organizations like like uh, Braver Angels, of course, uh, and others, which provides avenues and, and entryways into the dialogue through live conversations via Zoom. We have large community debate forums, which are not antagonistic or not meant to be, but are give people the opportunity to address questions like 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 uh, the nature of systemic racism. We had a large nationwide community debate on this just this past week and, and various other means by which we have people sort of come into a space, give their point of view on a subject, but design that dialogue so that everybody's actually heard and gets a window into the human beings on the other side of the conversation past the stereotype. We have to be able to sort of and, you know, independent media, the Internet provides us ways of doing this, I think sort of short circuit or at least find a way through the kind of polarizing culture that comes through in a lot of the traditional media formats, which is so sort of, you know, invested in controversial bullet points, talking points and so forth. But that doesn't provide a, um, a, a constructive breeding ground for understanding. Right. Um but I think one of the most important things I can emphasize is the fact that ultimately, I think that the moral language of the gospel, the moral language, the spiritual language of the church needs to find its footing uh, in this moment where I, I think that the, the, the increasing absence of something of a shared moral and spiritual framework, even for people who don't consider themselves Christian, but still have a relationship to the idea that we are all we are all of us uh, uh, guilty of sin and in need of absolution, in need of of salvation and a path path towards redemption. Even if you look at that in just kind of a social context, that part of our culture, 
uh, has been missing now, I think, or at least increasingly missing for a long time. We are confusing the idea of getting over and getting beyond uh, sin, whether it be the sin of prejudice, arrogance, um, not listening and not empathizing or understanding or loving your your, your neighbor. Um, we are we are confusing, I think, the process of getting beyond sin generally with just the state of having sort of, I don't know, the right political opinion, if you will, being the right kind of the right kind of anti racist or maybe sort of, you know, the right kind of the right kind of patriot or what have you. And what happens is in the absence of of, of a genuine loving your neighbor as you love yourself or even loving your political enemy as you you know, as you as you love yourself we don't have sort of bridges that we can cross in communication with each other that transcend politics. Everything has become politics. Everything has become limited to the narrow ethical kind of vocabulary of, you know, left versus right, um, you know, left, left, left versus right competition. And now, you know, uh, different versions of that emerge in the racial dialogue, which are just as limiting, but pin us into uh, places of extraordinary sort of tribal and, and animosity, which we see kind of boiling over, you know, into American life in a context where we already have so many other struggles and so many other problems. And so the church's role in this, and I hope to see these bridges built between the, the black and white uh, evangelical um, and Protestant churches, just, just for one to begin with, but then, you know, well beyond that. Um, let, let's not underestimate uh, the potential role of revival. I think in reintroducing moral and ethical and spiritual grounding and meaning to conversations in America that de- desperately needed, because um, you know the like I said the the, the the arguments over racial reality are complicated and complex. That you know it's not as if the church gives us every tool to navigate these. We have to have intellectual and political conversations over them that seek common ground and ways to move forward. But if there's not love, and if from mm-hmm. love there cannot be trust that develops, there's no hope for that. And so the church has a role which cannot be set aside. John Wood uh, Jr., thank you so much. I'm hoping that you will be willing to continue this conversation. I'm getting uh, really great feedback from listeners. They love not only the content, but the tone um, and the help in uh, in how we would posture ourselves in the midst of a very, very polarized nation where we want to be people who sow peace. We want to be people who bring God back into the conversations of the day. Um, and we need help in doing that. BraverAngels.org is where you need to go. Um, let me encourage you. I was going to ask about the songwriting con- contest under mm. the What We Do tab. So let me just encourage yeah. you, if you're listening right now, there's some really cool stuff under the What We Do tab at BraverAngels.org, and I want you to check it out. John, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to the next time. Thank you, Carmen. God bless you, and I'm looking forward to Likewise. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. All right, I shared with you earlier the international headline that China and Iran have entered into a new partnership. Uh, you've also heard in the headlines this morning that China is barring entry to Senators Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, along with Representative Chris Smith uh, and the State Department's Religious Freedom Ambassador Sam Brownback. Now, um, uh, that is not a huge surprise that China would bar entry to these individuals. It is a surprise since none of them were actually seeking to travel to China. 
uh, anytime soon. So it's a little bit like, um, hey, don't ever try to visit us. You're not welcome here. Um, that's a persona non grata. It is significant because it does not often happen to um, to American very high profile uh, politicians. So we want to have that in view. Hey, next up, I'm going to talk with David Aikman. We're going to do some international headlines. We're going to lead off with the uh, the mayor of Seoul, uh, South Korea. Um, we're also going to talk about what is going on uh, in Germany and the rise in far right and far left violence. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You can't control the weather. You aren't in charge of the economy. You can't unwreck the car, but you can map out a strategy. Remember, God is in this crisis. This is Max Locato. Ask God to give you two or three steps you can take today. Seek counsel from someone who's faced a similar challenge. Ask friends to pray. Reach out to a support group. Most importantly, make a plan. You'd prefer a miracle for your crisis? You'd rather see the bread multiplied or the stormy sea turned glassy, calm, and a finger snap? God may do this. Then again, he may say, I'm with you. I can use this for good. Now let's make a plan. God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility. It just empowers it. So don't let the crisis paralyze you. Trust God to do what you can't. Obey God and do what you can. This is Max Licato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me again today, David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How nice to talk to you again. Good morning, sir. It's a delight to talk to you as well. Um, many people would be listening right now and would not know the uh, the headline news around um, at least some portions of the globe related to the mayor of Seoul, South Korea. Um, and so we're just going to share with them that story and then I'd love for you to give your, your insight related to it. Right. Well, it's a tragic story. He disappeared and his daughter... Um, got a message on the phone from him saying that uh, he was going to be out of town for a little bit. And then his body was discovered not far from Seoul in a, basically a parkland area. And the assumption is that he committed suicide. Now, the tragedy is that this man had been in many ways a hero of the opposition to the right-wing conservative um, dictatorship that eventually was overturned, making South Korea a genuine democracy. And after he had become mayor of, well, he's, he was actually a lawyer who presented several women in discrimination cases and, uh, and sort of Me Too situations. And he basically prided himself as being a voice for the voiceless. And apparently there was an allegation by a woman against him of inappropriate behavior, which she regarded as sexual harassment. And he was so offended by this uh, that uh, he basically decided he couldn't couldn't face 
I mean, I'm interpreting the possibility that it was genuinely suicide, so he couldn't face what uh, he was up against in the public arena, and he sort of committed suicide because of that. So when we think about a uh, a person who was understood basically to be a rising star uh, in terms of what I'll just describe as as liberal leadership globally, um, this is this is is tragic. Suicide is tragic. Um, the honor shame culture is certainly a part of this conversation. Um, when we think about the city of Seoul, South Korea, and we think about South Korea and its relationship to North Korea and the conversations that take place between those two nations. Um, Just give us a little bit of a historical sense there of how significant um, the role of this individual and this position as the uh, the mayor of this very large city in South Korea, why, why this matters. Well, it was important because his success as a mayor, he was generally considered successful. He'd accomplished a lot. And he was sought of as a prominent candidate in the next presidential elections for Korea, for South Korea. And so that takes, you know, his disappearance, or not his disappearance, but his demise, completely upsets the whole scenario of uh, future elections in South Korea. And... He was a man of sort of liberal leaning, but he was well within the mainstream of Korean politics regarding how to relate to North Korea and also to the United States. So it's a major loss for the Korean community as a whole. All right, David Aikman and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about China. Um, We have already uh, made note of the fact that China says it's going to deny entry to several American uh, politicians in relationship to their statements, uh, their criticisms of the regime's treatment of people of faith. Um, Among those are the State Department's Religious Freedom Ambassador, Sam Brownback. Uh, We have also talked this morning briefly about the new partnership forged between China and Iran and the problems with that. When we come back, uh, David is going to share with us the sanctions um, that the U.S. State Department has issued Uh, against Chinese officials and put it all into context for us. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We have spoken frequently with David Aikman about China, in particular its efforts um, at communizing Hong Kong. We have also talked about the horrific treatment of the Uyghur people, uh, the Uh, Muslim population in Western China. Um, David, bring us up to date on U.S. sanctions related to Chinese officials um, and then other things that you see in play related to headlines uh, featuring China. Well, it's significant because the United States has put an embargo on entry into the United States of uh, two or three senior officials connected to the policies being implemented in Xinjiang province, and also their immediate families. And in response, the Chinese have done the same kind of embargo on a number of senior officials, including, including Senator Mark Rubio, Senator Ted Cruz, and the Ambassador for Religious Freedom, 
Um, Sam Brownback. Yeah, so it, it's a very serious tit-for-tat going on about policy disputes in, in relations between uh, China and the United States. And I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon because the degree of, if you like, um, intensity of communization of Hong Kong, the continuation of a savage policy of repression of the Xinjiang Uyghur Muslims uh, means that the two sides are going to have places where they can't even talk to each other in the foreseeable future. So I think China is going to sort of be sulking and licking its wounds from the rebuff from the United States and also rebuff from many other countries in the world that are imposing similar kind of sanctions on Chinese leaders associated with the repression of religious faith and of the Uyghurs of Xinjiang. So, David, as we're um, reading headlines related to uh, this partnership being forged between China and Iran, I'm thinking that there are probably people listening who are thinking, well, so what? Um, You know, those are both countries uh, far, far away, and they have little influence um, over us. Talk, Talk about the the danger of this kind of partnership, the potential danger of this kind of partnership um, between China and Iran? Well, you and many listeners can recall that President George W. Bush spoke of the axis of evil existing between uh, Iraq, Iran, and uh, uh, North Korea regarding nuclear weapons. And the the idea was that certain nations can get together in opposition to the United States, and one can help the other. And in this case, we got a, a real situation of collusion between China and Iran in wanting to attack the interests of the United States, particularly be a threat to Israel and in general cause mischief wherever in the world both of those countries think it's possible to cause mischief. And it's it's not going to be a situation that's going to get any better anytime soon, unfortunately. Uh, the Chinese don't want to make life easier for the United States and the Middle East. And Iran certainly doesn't want to do that either. So we're going to see continuing cooperation cooperation between both of these countries uh, until some kind of resolution happens, maybe through external events. Okay, and then I know we only have a couple of minutes, and I know that this is a huge subject matter area to cover, but can you um, sort of help us understand what is happening uh, in terms of far-right and far-left violence on the rise in Germany? Yes. Um, Germany, on the whole, has handled far-right political activists quite well since World War II, uh, with very strict regulations about 
symbols, for example, the swastika that you're not allowed to display in public, which you can even do in the United States. And Germany has done that fairly well. But there's been a lot of hostility among ordinary Germans because of the influx of immigrants from the Middle East, uh, most of them, of course, being Muslim. And as some Germans see it, threatening the law and order of uh, particular German uh, cities and localities. And so that has given rise to right-wing activists uh, promoting a very strict policy of exclusion towards these migrants. And uh, that has caused the crackdown on the far-right groups by the German government. All right. Um, I'm going to save the uh, Turkey story about the uh, Haggai Sophia because I think, David, I have Eichen Erdemir and or his wife, who is a professor on the subject of the Haggai Sophia uh, in in Pittsburgh. I think I have her teed up for later this week. So I'm going to um, just tease that story instead of covering it with you. Is that OK? Well, that's fine. And maybe we could talk about it next week, because on the 16th, or so we're going to get the announcement by the Turkish court of what decision they've given on uh, re uh, returning the Hagia Sophia to use as a mosque. Exactly, exactly. It's a it's a stunning. Uh, it would be a stunning reversal and um, and very uh, important for us to talk about, particularly in, in terms of where Turkey sits. Um, not only geopolitically, but where they sit in terms of um, influence, leaning more now, I think, toward the east than toward the west. Their posture uh, certainly more solidly on uh, on the Islamic ideological foot than on the Western democratic way of thinking about things. Um, David Aikman, as as always, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. We'll talk with you again next Monday. Carmen, thanks so much. Lovely to be on the program, as always. Lovely to have you. Have a great week. We'll be right back. Okay, so we have about a minute left. And let me um, answer the concern of at least one listener who says, can't we have more good news stories, more stories about revival? All right, you and I are the good news people. We have the good news. We possess it. We are invested with it. We are the good news people. If there's going to be good news out there in the culture, it's going to be because we marched it out there. So, my good news ambassadors, time to armor up. Time to get out there. Time to, you know, take back one square inch. There is a lot of bad news. I recognize that. In fact, uh, the media is full of it. Um, uh, Probably a couple of ways to understand that statement. Um, But let me tell you, there is good news. And, you know, let's be mindful. You can always go to, what is it, inspiremore.com. You get all kinds of great good news stories there. If you need a little good news today, go to inspiremore.com. I am mindful that, um, oh, Faithwire. Faithwire.com always carries carries good news stories as, as well. I read a great good news story today uh, in the Washington Post about some uh, some guys in Arizona who literally caught these children who their mother was throwing off the balcony of the burning building. 
So there you go. There's a good news story for you that you could read today, even in the Washington Post. All right. Now we are officially out of time. Uh, Have a great day. Make it a great day. Be a good news ambassador today. Have a great day. and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.